Welcome to the Limitless Mindset Podcast. This podcast will teach you to acquire superhuman mental abilities and hack your reality. In this episode, you will learn how to become a human Google who can instantly remember thousands of obscure details, facts, antidotes, or stories within three seconds. This podcast will demonstrate and most importantly break down a shockingly simple, bizarre, and surprisingly fun memory system for hardwiring strong neuronal pathways between your conscious and unconscious mind. I share a hilarious yet very true story about a sovereign nation in modern times that declared a war against birds and then lost that war. Also, why working hard and working smart is not enough to get ahead in the modern business world anymore, along with the applied neuroscience behind why an ambitious, smart person can, in a few short years, become burnt out and unhappy with their career, and how to make sure that doesn't happen to you. joining me. Today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics, memory systems. We first introduced the fascinating history of memory systems back in episode number 11. That episode I actually recorded at a park which is located on the border of France and Panama. So if that sounds geographically impossible to you, go back and listen to episode 11 if you haven't heard it already. If you want to have a memory like the guy in the movie Limitless, or if you just want a memory that's going to make you better at your job, or if you want to maintain your memory as you age, learning to use memory systems will help you significantly. Despite being immensely useful in virtually every area of life, memory systems don't get a lot of press. In fact, there's a lot of educated, informed people in our society that have never even heard of memory systems. And the reason behind this is because memory systems really are not very commercially viable as products. There's not a lot of money in selling memory systems. You don't need to buy drugs or supplements to use memory systems. You don't need to purchase expensive classes, coaching, or courses either to really benefit from them. In fact, I learned a lot about memory systems when I was younger from a $7 book that I bought. And as you'll see in this podcast episode, memory systems are also something that you can learn 
pretty quickly. In fact, interesting piece of information, there's an author named Joshua Fowler who appeared on the Colbert Report TV show, and he was interviewed by Stephen Colbert, who's a very entertaining pundit. In fact, we will link that interview on the show notes of this episode. And Joshua Fowler was the USA memory champion for the event Speed Cards. And what's interesting about this is that Joshua went from being someone that knew pretty much nothing about memory systems to being the national champion of the USA Memory Championship in one year. And he did that while he was working a full-time job, while he had a wife, and I think he might have even been raising a child while that happened. So learning memory systems does not take a huge amount of time either. In fact, by the end of this podcast, you will have a really firm grasp on how to go out there and apply them for a lot of benefit. So the title of this episode is How to Become a Human Google. So since the listenership of this podcast is quite tech savvy, I'm going to teach you how to use memory systems by using internet search engines as a metaphor for the way that your mind works. So... Have you ever had the experience of being in a conversation in a social or business situation and something interesting is being discussed and you have a relevant fact, a relevant antidote, or a relevant story to what is being discussed that is on the tip of your tongue? Well, of course you have. Everyone is familiar with that frustrating sensation of feeling like you know something about a topic, but being unable to recall the specific information or details at the moment that it would be the very most useful to do so. Then, a few hours or days later, the knowledge seems to kind of just pop into your head, which is doubly frustrating because you could have really used it a couple hours or days earlier and now here it is late how many of us would have performed better at a job interview a business meeting a presentation a social situation or maybe even on a date if our working conscious memory could instantaneously pull facts and data out of our unconscious Well, that's what memory systems are going to help you do. Now, you've probably heard before that the human brain is like this super powerful computer that's way more powerful than any computer that exists anywhere else on this planet. So you probably wondered before, if the human brain is such a powerful computer, then why does this happen? Why isn't my brain literally like Google where I can just give it a demand and it will instantaneously 
pull me that piece of information back. Because the human brain actually has the capacity for about 1,000 terabytes of information. And to put this into comparison, back in 2008, Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google at the time, said that Google had only indexed 170 terabytes of information on the internet. So why can't we recall facts instantaneously like this? Well, it's because the conscious mind, which neuroscientists frequently compare to RAM or random access memory of a computer, has a much smaller capacity for information. Some sources say that the conscious mind is approximately 10% or 5% of the total mind. Some sources even estimate that the conscious mind is as small as about 512 megabytes. I don't think anyone really knows exactly for sure how large the conscious mind is, and it probably varies person to person, and it probably varies based upon a hundred different variables. But continuing with the technology metaphor, the search engines of the conscious mind prefer to go down familiar paths to pull data out of the unconscious. So some obscure obscure fact that you heard in a documentary a couple years ago or that you heard in a conversation with some person that you only met once a long time ago, some obscure fact like that that suddenly becomes relevant to a present conversation is going to require a lot of your very finite conscious RAM to extract that from the obscure domain of your unconscious where it resides. So think about it. How often do you forget your mother's name? Okay. How often do you forget what your job is? How often do you forget where you live? Probably never. Because these are very familiar pathways to the search engines of your mind. These are the neuronal connections that are nice and fat and strong and wide. So hopefully that will explain why it is that obscure facts take a, a little bit longer for your conscious mind to pull than things that you're very familiar with in your life. So why do relevant facts pop into your head hours or days after you need them? Well, your unconscious mind is kind of like a personal secretary. So let's say that there's some memory that you need but can't find. Your unconscious mind will get to work looking for it, and then it will deliver this to your memory when it's found it, most of the time. Now, my understanding of evolutionary psychology is that for the vast majority of the history of the human race, and you know the human race has been around for several hundred thousand years, for the vast majority of that time we didn't have cities and cars and iPhones and all these different social constructs and pieces of technology that our minds needed to manage at any given time. Primarily our minds needed to manage 
the kind of things that you see animals needing to take care of, which is immediate survival, procreation, finding food, those type of things. And so the mental capacity of our conscious mind has not evolved as quickly as our societies have evolved. And hopefully within, hopefully people like myself that are transhumanists hope that within the next couple decades using nanotechnology and biotechnology, we will get our minds caught up with our society. However, for the time being, we have these really great natural tools of memory systems that you can use. So, like a computer hacker who wants complete and instantaneous control and access to the full database, how are we going to hack our memory? Well, there's two primary tools that we're going to use to hack our memory. The first is absurd or novel visual associations. Okay, think back to a moment when you saw something very strange or novel to you. By novel, I don't mean a book, I mean something that's new to you. So this could be like the first time you rode in an airplane, the first time you saw people get in a violent fight, a car accident, or exciting visuals at an experience like a concert. I bet it's easy for you to recall all kinds of details surrounding this event, like who you were with, what was said, how you felt about this situation, etc. This is because the mind forms much stronger neuronal pathways and resulting memories when an event is occurring that is bizarre, absurd, strange, or novel. It is much easier for our conscious mind to access memories that are strange or weird than those that are mundane and bland. The second tool we use in memory systems is multiple pathways. Our conscious minds also have the most ease accessing memories that are well networked with multiple pathways to other common memory areas. So. I'm never going to forget the basic sales skills I learned early in my career because these memories are networked to memories I access almost every day as I work, memories of books I've read, memories of courses I've taken, memories of articles that I've written, memories of conversations, memories of movies I've watched, memories of mentors that I've had, and memories of deals that I've done. The data in my unconscious mind of my sales skills is connected literally probably to many thousands and thousands, many probably actually tens of thousands of other memory areas in my mind that I access almost constantly. So I'm never going to forget these particular skills. From now on, whenever we 
hear or see an interesting piece of information that we think will be useful in the future, we're going to apply both of these tools, which again are absurd or novel visual associations and multiple pathways. We're going to apply both of these mechanisms for ensuring fast extraction of it in the future. No one man should have In the 2011 movie Limitless, the main character takes a clear pill which endows superhuman mental abilities, which allow for him to become a master communicator, creative genius, and a wealthy, powerful businessman virtually overnight. While the movie and the drug in it are fictional, there certainly are real-life supplements that can significantly enhance your brain power, memory, and cognitive abilities. If you are committed to reaching your greatest potential, you are definitely going to want to check out the marketplace of brain power products and supplements on LimitlessMindset.com. This marketplace is built with ratings and review software that allows you to see what brain power supplements and products are creating the most powerful results for other members of the Limitless Mindset community. Go to LimitlessMindset.com backslash marketplace today to find the neurotropic supplement or brain power product that is right for you. So now let's break down the process and we're going to use a really fun example for this. So I'd like to ask you that as I'm going through this story that we're going to use as an example, and it's a very historical, very it's, it's a historical story. This isn't something that I'm just making up. As we're going through this and as I'm going through the different visual associations that we're using here for the memory systems, I'd like to ask that you Try to use your imagination and use your mind's eye as much as possible to mentally transport yourself into the, the scenes of this historical event and to, if you can't even try to feel what the characters and individuals in this historical situation were experiencing. So the example is the disastrous Australian Emu War of 1932. And this is a real war that Australia declared and lost against giant flightless birds in Western Australia. In 1932, the global depression was at one of its lowest points, and it was really hitting people hard in the frontier of Western Australia. And to compound the problem, there was this vast population of over 20,000 giant flightless birds invading their fields and 
eating their crops. Now, I'm sure that our Australian listeners have been to zoos and have seen emus, but for those of our listeners that haven't ever seen an emu before in person, it's this great big huge bird that kind of looks like uh, if you imagine in Jurassic Park, if the velociraptors in that movie kind of like went on a diet and got like really skinny and grew some feathers, that's kind of what an emu looks like. It's this big, tall, ugly bird. They can actually grow up to about an average of six foot five. They can even, they can get above seven feet tall. So these are really large birds. They can weigh up to several hundred pounds also, but they're flightless birds. So they have wings, they can flap around, get a few feet off the ground, but they can't get very far. So they're mostly stuck just walking across the ground. And they're really big, ugly birds, and they have these these big claws too. These claws that they can they, they can actually kill other animals. I think there's actually been a very few cases of humans being killed by emus because they have these big claws on their feet that they can jump up in the air and kick things with um, that are very very sharp claws. So in 1932, it was just kind of crappy living in Western Australia, and it was a really big problem because these giant birds were going through their migratory patterns and thousands of these birds would invade the farms and they would steal and eat up all the crops. And so the Australian government decided that a military solution was the best way to solve this significant emu problem. So a major in the Australian army took on this project and obviously everyone hated these stupid birds that were that were stealing food. They were they were causing <clears throat> famine conditions for the the people in Western Australia at the time. And so this uh, major who had served in World War One was like well, this is, this is no problem. I will just go out there with a group of soldiers and our machine guns that we just, you know, got back, that we, we defeated the Germans in World War, II, World War I using, and we're going to show these pesky birds who is, who's in charge of Western Australia. And so he thought, so he, he decided to seize what he thought was a golden PR opportunity and they publicly declared a war against the emu and so then he proceeded out to Western Australia with his troops but it turned out that the emu was actually quite a worthy foe for these machine gun wielding World War One veterans and the birds were they were surprisingly resilient to machine gun fire they could they could run much faster than the soldiers and they were very well adapted to the harsh environment of the Australian frontier and it turned out that after campaign going on actual t 
two going on multiple campaigns to try to wipe out the population of these birds. The Australian government, it was dealing with the global depression, it was dealing with the losses it had sustained in World War I, it eventually gave up on this military strategy after killing only 2,500 of the birds out of a population that some sources estimate could have been as high as about 300,000 birds at the time, so it killed just a very small proportion of the birds. They gave up on the military strategy and they instituted a bounty system to incentivize locals to kill the birds. And I eventually the bounty system worked out. I don't know a whole lot more about the story after that. But it's a downright hilarious antidote to bring up in in social situations anytime Australia is being discussed. So now that we have our piece of information that we want to store and easily extract, we are going to create three neuronal pathways to this piece of information using absurd visual associations. What's important is that you create a really bizarre visualization that connects the piece of information, which in this case is the Australian Emu War, to words or ideas that you encounter as you go about your life. And this visual association should be whatever comes to your mind first when someone mentions Australia. So for me, I've never actually been to Australia, but when someone says Australia to me, the first thing that I think about is the beautiful, iconic Sydney Opera House. So for the absurd visualization, picture this scene with me. Close your eyes and imagine thousands of giant emu birds. And if you have to, if you're by a computer, open your eyes back up for a minute, go and Google search what an emu bird looks like so you can get a real visualization of it. And these aren't normal emu birds that we're visualizing. These are 40 foot tall emu birds that are attacking the Sydney Opera House and they're tearing parts of it off with their their giant claws and they're climbing on topping top of it and making these these terrible bird screaming noises and as this happens a bunch of humans who are dressed like like farmers like you know like hick farmers with overalls and a big hat these soldiers that are dressed like farmers fight back and shoot at the birds, at these giant birds with their guns. So it's kind of like a scene in that really corny but awesome movie called Starship Troopers. Look it up if you haven't seen it, where the soldiers are fighting those giant bugs, but instead it's soldiers that look like farmers and they're defending the Sydney Opera House from these giant evil emus. This is pretty absurd scene, isn't it? So just take a minute again to... Close your eyes and really let the scene just sink in. And this is going to form a much stronger neuronal pathway between Australia and the story, the piece of information that we want to recall. 
The second neuronal pathway that we're going to create is a time path association. So sometimes the visual association, for whatever reason, doesn't work to bring the memory to our conscious. For this reason, it's a good idea to link using another absurd visualization, the piece of information we want to remember to a significant life event occurring close to the time that we learned the piece of information in the first place. The significant life event could be a significant change in your career or work, something happening in your family life, moving somewhere new, a relationship change. It could be a wide variety of things. What's important is that the significant life event is something that is very memorable and it set the general mood for your, your memories of this time of your life. So, like before, we're going to create an absurd visual association to link the time frame to the piece of information. So, for me, in the weeks surrounding the time that I first learned about the Australian Emu War, this was a couple of years ago, I was dating a particular girl, we'll name her Yolanda. Well, I was sort of dating her. I was really busy with work at the time and I was unable to spend as much time with her as I would have liked. And we had a real connection, so it frustrated me that we couldn't spend as much time together. And this reflected a general frustration I had with my life and work at the time. So any kind of romantic relationship is a fairly significant life event in the neuronal network of our minds. And this was during a very hot summer. So let's go now and create our visual association. I'm going to imagine Yolanda and she's outside on a hot bright day in a in an outdoorsy environment, the kind of place that I imagine Western Australia being like. I've never been to Western Australia, but I imagine it kind of being like a desert environment. So I'm going to imagine Yolanda out there and it's hot and she's kind of sweaty and she looks like she could use some water or some Gatorade or something like that. And then she starts getting attacked by emu birds, but the, the normal sized emu birds, like the, the six foot tall ones, not the 40 foot tall ones, because Yolanda just would have no chance against the 40 foot tall ones. So this violently bizarre and, and emotional scene is, is definitely going to stick into my memory. So now, when I think of Yolanda around this time in my life, I will think of the Australian emu war because of this this kind of violent, but this very bizarre association that's linking the time that I acquired the information to the information itself. So let's talk about retrieval by time path association. What you'll do is mentally go back to the approximate time you think that you acquired the information you are looking for. So you'll be like, 
you'll be thinking about like, oh, okay, I watched a documentary about this movie, and it was when I was living in Chicago, and it was cold, so it must have been the winter time of like 2011, because 2011 was when I was living in Chicago, and then as you are mentally going through that time, your search engines of your conscious are going to start to hit on the neuronally significant life events you had, your relationships, your moves, your career stuff. And if you're creating this life event connection between the information, your search engines are going to pick it up that way. Another thing that's important, let your conscious search engines feel the emotions and the sentiments you had about the different life events that were occurring. And if you've used an absurd visual association as a link, you will recall in mere moments the information that you are seeking. The third path we're going to create is an environmental path association. So another effective way to link a piece of information we want to remember is to associate it to the environment we were in while we acquired the original piece of information. So in the case of the Australian Emu War, I learned this from a documentary film that I was watching at a client's house. And the house had a huge backdoor patio that had this phenomenal view of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. So I'm going to create a visual association now. So I'm going to imagine giant emus. They're back to their, their 40 foot size now. Much bigger than normal ones. And so these giant emus are running down the mountains and the foothills of Colorado towards me sitting on the patio of my client's house. And as I get closer, I can hear their screeching, angry bird calls. And as they get closer and closer, I decide I need to get the hell out of here. So I run out and I jump in my car and I speed off. And as I'm speeding off, I can see in my rearview mirror as these birds are tearing down my client's house and maybe my client even runs out of the house but my these giant birds get him as he's running across his lawn so it's a pretty extreme scenario and it's going to stick in my mind and that environment that I originally acquired that piece of information in is going to be invariably linked to this abstract, for me, piece of historical information. So our memories of environments are usually closer to the surface of our unconscious than abstract facts or random pieces of information are. Environment naturally gets linked stronger via the wide multiple paths to our time frame and our significant life event memories. Like if you think back to a significant life event, it you can usually pretty vividly recall the environments that you were in, the buildings that you were in, what the weather was like, what the what the colors were like of the rooms that you were in, and those sort of things. Because environments and life and significant life events, they go together. Another thing, you know, interesting example of this, think about when you travel 
to a place where you grew up. Like, let's say you travel back to the city or the town that you grew up in, and you, you drive down the street to where your old house used to be, and as you're driving down that seat, that street, as you're going back into that environment, all these odd little memories that you probably don't think about hardly ever of, you know, some crazy thing you did with your friends or something sad that happened or something funny that happened on this corner or that corner or by this tree or whatever. These memories start flooding back to you. And that's why sometimes people get emotional when they go back to a place that they grew up at. So now, as opposed to the Australian Emu War existing in some obscure and hard-to-access corner of my mind, I have three fairly strong neuronal pathways linking to it. I highly doubt it will ever take me more than two to three seconds to remember the Australian Emu War in any given scenario. Even though I've never been to Australia, I've never been to war, and I've never even seen an emu at a zoo. Since you've been visualizing these different scenarios along with me over the course of this podcast, I have essentially implanted false memories in your mind. Kind of like the people do in that awesome movie, Inception. So, chances are you will not ever forget the Australian Emu War either. However, it's very important, and I want to really emphasize this, so please listen up. It's very important that memory systems are built with your own creative faculty using the visualizations that appeal to you. So I would challenge you to take the time right now, pause this podcast, and create visual associations and pathways for the Australian Emu War using your own memories and using your own creative faculty. So the first one that you want to think about is when someone says Australia, what is the first thing that you visualize? Go ahead and create a visual association of whatever that is that is somehow associated to what you've learned so far about the Australian Emu War. The next path that you want to create is the Significant Life Event Association. So think about what is a significant life event that's going on right now for you and can you take the themes and the emotions and the circumstances of this significant life event that's kind of coloring your experience of life at the the current time and create an absurd, bizarre association between that life event and the Australian Emu War. And the final pathway that we want to create is the environmental path. So where are you right now? Are you at home? Are you in an office building working and listening to this podcast while you're working? Are you maybe at the gym? Are you outside exercising? Are you in a gym exercising right now? Wherever you are right now, create an absurd, bizarre visual association between your current environment where you've learned about the Australian Emu War and imagining 
emus attacking you there, or, or whatever works the best for you. As you can see from these examples, my creative faculty skews a little bit towards the violent and destructive side of things, which is kind of odd because I'm an extremely non-violent person. Other than having a black belt in Taekwondo, I've never actually started a fight with anyone in my life. I've ended a couple, but I've never actually started a fight with anyone. I'm generally just a quintessentially peaceful, happy person. So it must be being raised on action movies and computer games that makes my imagination a little bit more violent. But if your imagination skews to other things, that's that's perfectly fine. Whatever makes the whatever makes the most sense. Some people have lots of absurd visualizations that are that are sexual or raunchy in nature. That even happens to me from time to time. But this is you know, a PG-13 rated podcast. So I keep those to myself and I encourage you to keep those to yourself. But if those are the kind of visual associations that you create that allow you to remember things, that's fine. If you're bold enough, go to the show notes of this podcast and in the comments area, share with me and with the rest of the Limitless Mindset community, what are the absurd visual associations that you come up with? Because when everyone starts sharing them, it's, it's really hilarious, honestly. It's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Now, a lot of people who are listening to this may think, well, this is really interesting, and I can see how memory systems work, but it seems like a lot of work to do to remember a lot of times what are pretty insignificant pieces of information. You know, I've taken I've taken over 30 minutes to explain the memory systems that we're using to just remember the Australian emu war. Now, like anything worth doing, using memory system does require some work. At first, it may take you as much as five minutes to even as much as 15 minutes, along with quite a bit of concentration to build the three visual association links for a piece of information. But your mind is an amazing computer that will quickly adapt to using memory systems. After practicing for just a few days or possibly as much as a few weeks, you will find that your conscious mind builds visual associations in as little as 10 to 30 seconds. Trained memory veterans who have been using memory systems consistently for years build their absurd visual associations in really in milliseconds. Think about the example earlier of Joshua Foer, and he memorized a deck of cards, an entire deck of cards, in just a minute and 40 seconds. So the learning curve is pretty easy on it. A little bit of a challenge at first, but if you're willing to put in just a little bit of effort, you get some real returns for it. I also want to talk about development of creative faculty. So as you can see, memory systems rely pretty heavily on your creative faculty to come up with these absurd scenes. So unless you are a novelist or you work for 
work with kids, or you have an artistic job, your creative faculty probably doesn't get a ton of exercise. So it might be a little bit rusty when you start to create these absurd visual associations. The good news, again, is that a little practice will fire it back up in a matter of few days or weeks. And as that happens, you'll also, you're actually, you'll actually start to in notice some interesting things. Your sense of humor will actually improve since you're becoming more creative and humor is intrinsically a creative process. Sometimes it will seem like there's a little comedian in your head just making jokes about everything in your life as you go about and you'll find that your friends and your family will give you more attention because of your improved sense of humor and your your clever observation about reality your clever the clever little observations that you'll make about reality you might also be thinking sometimes i encounter dozens of facts or pieces of information worth remembering over the course of a day. So am I supposed to stop and use memory systems on all of them? No, I would recommend start by building one or two memory systems based around facts a day. And once you are more competent with the memory systems and once they start coming really naturally to you, then start to bump it up. And what you'll find also is that as your brain gets more active with creating these neuronal pathways, you're going to start to remember things much better that you did create any kinds of visual associations for. So your subconscious is going, your unconscious is going to start adopting this practice. Where memory systems become really fulfilling is after you've been practicing them for a couple weeks or a couple months and you start getting really competent with them and your friends and your family and strangers start complimenting you on your sharp memory. And that's that's really validating. That's a really great feeling when you know that you've applied some effort and that you've built yourself a better brain and that others are recognizing it. Let's talk now about why working hard and working smart is not enough to get ahead in the business world. This is about applied neuroscience and career burnout. So society tells us a bunch of different times while we're growing up that if we work hard and if we work smart persistently, we will achieve financial success, we're going to get ahead in business, and we're going to be truly happy. In actuality, smart, ambitious, creative people are at a high risk for career burnout despite their hard work and persistent efforts. And I actually have a story to tell, and it's a little bit of a cautionary tale about how you can avoid burnout in your career and business life. This story is about an old friend of mine that drastically influenced the career path which I pursued. And we will call this old friend Yuri. That's not his real name though, but we'll call him that because he was a Russian immigrant. And I've always thought 
very highly of Russians and people from Eastern European cultures. They're very direct and aggressive, but at the same time, they're very loyal and they're also very hardworking people. I met Yuri at the end of my last year in high school, when I was like 18 or 19 years old. He was a year older than me, and I was very impressed by this guy. He was a top-performing salesperson at a car dealership, actually, at a very young age. He was the kind of guy that was always happy to buy his friends dinner or buy everyone a round of drinks. He was a tall, handsome guy who wore nice clothing, a nice watch, and he drove a nice luxury car that he had completely purchased all on his own with his own money at a time when most of my friends were driving crappy, broken-down Honda Civics and teenager high schooler cars. I remember him as being a street, social, and business-savvy young man. He even had big plans to one day open up his own car dealership and go into business for himself. So Yuri was a winner. Upon graduation, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I was sick of being a waiter at restaurants, and I had no idea what would be a worthwhile college degree to pursue. So I decided to try doing the same thing that Yuri did for work. He gave me some tips on how to nail an interview and become a car salesman, which I applied, and soon after graduating high school, I had a very serious job as a car salesman at the busiest Toyota dealership in my state. And this put me on the entrepreneurial career path for life. My friend Yuri soon left the car business for the, at the time, booming real estate finance business. This was like in the mid-2000s, and he did even better there. He came to me and he was like, Jonathan, this is where the hot action is. This is where a lot of business is going on right now, and it's very lucrative. And so I also got out of the car business, and he got me a job at a finance firm where I advanced quickly, and I continued to grow my sales and deal-making skill sets. At the time, we had really active social lives. Yuri smoked a lot of cigarettes. He drank daily almost, like you'd expect a good Russian to, and partied pretty hard, like you would expect a successful young man to. We were having a great time. We were working harder and playing harder than almost anyone we knew. As the boom times in the real estate finance business subsided, I began my career in corporate America. Yuri was promoted at his brokerage and got a greater workload of increasingly difficult difficult to finance deals that he was in charge of managing. So he would spend arduous, long hours in the office trying to save these finance deals as the 2008 financial crisis was was growing. And we were partying quite a bit, but I was also noticing that, that Yuri was drinking a little bit heavier because he had just so much stress to blow off from work. 
After several more years in corporate America, I cashed out my 401k investment portfolio, fired my boss, and went into business for myself. And around the same time, Yuri suffered a really long due burnout from the stress, and he quit. He quit his job in the finance industry. Unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending. Years have passed, and Yuri now lives in a crappy apartment in a really bad part of town here in Denver. He never opened his own dealership or started his own business, and he can't really hold down a job for more than a few months. And he's also gotten two DUIs, which are these serious drinking and driving penalties that you get in the United States if you're caught drinking and driving. And they, they usually entail a little bit of jail time along with costs of about $10,000. From time to time, I still spend time with him, but my old friend is gone. He's antisocial now and kind of a buzzkill to hang out with, even though he's blackout drunk most of the time that he's out partying. I've also noticed that he's very forgetful of things. So why does this happen? Why does a smart, hardworking person become a, a loser in their career. Someone might say that he made some bad decisions in business, sticking with the real estate finance industry, but bad decisions are an inevitability of business and an inevitability of taking the kind of risks that you need to take to get ahead in your career. I would contend that his current state is a result of his complete mismanagement of his own brain health. So, over the eight years I've known Yuri, he has drank heavily, a lot of times on a daily basis. He works out aerobically, very, very inconsistently, smokes a lot of cigarettes. He's worked in very hard, high-stress, deal-making environments. He's eaten plenty of fast food, plenty of junk food, and now he eats lots of very cheap food. He's never applied any discipline to his diet. And while Yuri has had very challenging jobs that required a lot of intellectual energy and finance skills and dealing with people, he's never really pursued intellectual development or any kind of cognitive training outside of the workplace. So let's analyze Yuri's story from an applied neuroscience perspective. Working in a 100% commission, deal-based environment, Yuri has had years of chronically high cortisol levels, which have been just wrecking his mind with stress. This stress has affected his ability to think critically and form memories. Now, lots of successful people work in high-stress commission and deal-based environments, but they do so with very effective effective natural stress release mechanisms in place like a daily exercise regimen, very strict diets that are high in antioxidants and good supplements, uh, having an active sex life, having a loving family to come home to every single day. And unfortunately, Yuri had none of these things with very much consistency. Ambition 
or career motivation is a part of the natural award and arousal faculty in our brains. When we accomplish our goals, our desires, our brain awards us with a burst of these feel-good neurotransmitters. And for years, Yuri, Yuri has spent years exposing his award and arousal system to unnatural chemical stimulants, the cigarettes, constant alcohol, and crappy food, which have reprogrammed his award and arousal system to respond to those kind of stimulants as opposed to the objective and goal-based stimulants. At the same time, constant high levels of stress inhibit the uptake of feel-good neurotransmitters by the neurons in the mind. So, proportionally, the more accomplishing a particular goal stresses you out, the less good you will actually feel when you accomplish it. The stress and putting yourself under that kind of mental duress as you're working towards a career goal, that will actually make that goal less fulfilling for you when you get there. Now, I should say that accomplishing anything significant does take concerted effort, and I think it's probably unrealistic to say that you can be an ambitious, hardworking person that accomplishes really big things with zero stress at all in your life, but when it's such an intense level of stress that you're driven to drink daily and smoke cigarettes and you're under mental duress while you're at the workplace, that's definitely going to deduct from the award system kicking in when you do accomplish those goals. I tell this kind of sad story because the kind of smart, ambitious people who listen to this podcast are at a high risk of succumbing to a sort of career-motivated martyr complex wherein we subject ourselves to this massive amount of stress to get ahead in workplace or because we want to embody this this trite maxim that I'm going to tell you that I really kind of hate this stupid saying. And here it is. Entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life like most people won't so that you can spend the most so that you can spend the rest of your life like most people can't this is in my opinion just a stupid feel-good platitude that is true for an exceptionally few people For the vast majority of people that own or operate their own businesses, entrepreneurship is a lifelong commitment. And of the small percentage of entrepreneurs that have an exit where someone acquires their company, or for the small percentage of entrepreneurs that actually do succeed in building an autonomous or a semi-autonomous cash flow generating business, a business that they don't really have to spend very much time on, but it just keeps feeding them money, most of those people go on to start another company, or they get into charity work, or they start a foundation, or they start writing books, or they start making movies. Most people 
continue working full time. So it's an exceptionally small proportion of an exceptionally small proportion of the top 1% of entrepreneurs that are actually going to spend a few years working on their company and then spend the rest of their lives just relaxing. So as we can see so vividly in the case of Yuri, this strategy of working unhealthily hard in hopes of a major payoff at some point in the future is not a sustainable career strategy for entrepreneurs or really for anybody else. Yeah, cash money heroes, private jets, polish. To connect with the Limitless Mindset community, along with a chance to win free neurotropic brain supplements and other awesome prizes, please give our Facebook page a like at facebook.com backslash Limitless Mindset. If you found this podcast to be informative and entertaining, please give us a five-star review in iTunes or whatever podcast directory you are listening and write us a review letting us know what you think of the show. And remember that the best compliment we can ever hope to receive is you sharing the show with a friend. Let's finish up this podcast by talking about what is a sustainable strategy for dealing with stress and working hard, working smart, staying very productive in your career. Coffee and nootropic brain supplements. So once upon a time, I had quite the raging coffee habit like a lot of people do. I would take a cup or two to get started in the morning, some more in the mid-afternoon to vanquish that post-lunch productivity lull, and sometimes a cup or two in the evening to keep me fired up and productive as I worked into the night. Now, as many of you know, actual coffee is quite healthy for your mind, primarily because of all the wonderful antioxidants in it. And you can healthily drink up to four to five cups daily of coffee. In fact, there was a study that showed that the number one source of antioxidant intake for Americans was actually coffee. However, my particular coffee habit was most likely not sustainably healthy. And here's why. When I was at home, I would drink the cheap stuff, Folgers or discounted Starbucks brand coffee if I could find it. Cheap coffee is not a good idea for a few reasons. It frequently contains microtoxins that can cause brain fog, make you less focused, and these microtoxins can cause a host of other physiological problems like obesity. Discounted coffee is often discounted because it is older which means that there's a higher likelihood of mold and microtoxins in it. I would also frequently add artificial sweeteners and vanilla to my coffee. 
at coffee shops, I would often order those delicious and expensive frappy mocha drinks, which contain high amounts of corn fructose ingredients, which detract significantly from the nutritional value of the coffee. Now, in the past couple months, I have almost completely broken what was probably a pretty legitimate addiction to a coffee that I had, and I've switched to nootropics along with having a perpetual glass of green tea sitting on my desk as my sources of chemically aided mental enhancement. And these really are a significant improvement over my coffee habit, and here is why. The productivity buzz or energetic feeling is about the same, actually, from nootropics as it is from pounding a cup of joe, but the difference is that it lasts throughout the whole day, as opposed to where with a coffee buzz, you're going to get like a real nice energy buzz for about 60 minutes, maybe up to 90 minutes after drinking a cup of coffee, and then you need another cup of coffee. Whereas with nootropics, it really lasts all day. Well, depending upon the nootropic I'm taking, because I've experimented with a number of them. Some of them, like Accelerol, are time-release, so it will be an all-day thing. Whereas some of them, like Paracetam, I like to do about four Paracetam pills in the morning, and then two after lunch, and I am focused throughout the entire day. My focus on tasks and getting things done is definitely improved. I've noticed that I solve technical problems faster when I'm working on my websites. I've noticed that I'm more articulate and persuasive and that I genuinely feel smarter while on nootropics. Whereas I think most people would agree that when you're on coffee, you just feel more wired and energetic. It's not necessarily that you're thinking more clearly and that you're deducing things in a better way, you're just thinking faster. Nootropics raise the baselines of the neurotransmitters that make you feel happy, content, and confident. I've noticed that while on nootropics, I feel better about life, regardless of what is going on, and I've noticed that I also cope better with the emotional roller coaster of being a small business person. I recently had a little cup of coffee for the first time in well over a month, and I got a serious caffeine buzz off just a small cup. The caffeine buzz is without a doubt inferior to a nootropic buzz. Being intimately familiar with both sensations, the nootropic buzz is smoother and more confident, whereas the caffeine buzz is worried, and I find myself being more mentally critical of myself throughout the day and the second-guessing the decisions that I'm making. The caffeine buzz, in my opinion, is really just a few degrees of anxiety removed from the kind of paranoid feeling that people get when they're on cocaine or methamphetamines. 
Buying a delicious beverage at coffee shops definitely adds up to about $70 to $100 monthly for me. Whereas the dosage of paracetam I take, which is anywhere from 4,200 to 5,000 milligrams daily, which is a pretty high dosage, a lot of people will feel quite limitless at half this dosage, is under $40 monthly. That's including shipping. I suppose if I never drank coffee at coffee shops and I just made the cheap stuff at home, it would be less expensive, but the vastly superior mind power that I get from paracetam is well worth it for me. Accelerol, which as I've said other places, is the closest thing I've found so far on this planet to a real life equivalent of NZT48, runs around $100 monthly. So it's economically equivalent to having a Starbucks habit. While I do really enjoy coffee shops, and I think they're a great casual social environment that I love to spend time, the minutes spent walking or driving to a coffee shop, waiting in line, and then waiting for your order, when multiplied by the daily habit that coffee is for a lot of people, definitely add up and detract from the valuable, productive time you have during your working day. In comparison, making enough green tea to drink all day only deducts about 120 seconds from my productive working day. Growing up, my family always drank crappy, cheap coffee. And I got the idea that pure black coffee was supposed to taste terrible. I guess that you didn't drink it for the taste, you drank it to wake up. And this is actually totally incorrect. If coffee tastes uncomfortably bitter, that usually means it's high in mold and may actually be really unhealthy for you. Healthy coffee actually tastes great without anything added to it. When I do drink coffee, it's a real treat that I really enjoy, and I only drink the stuff that tastes pleasant. Green tea tastes even better and makes for a better daily habit since it doesn't ruin your breath or stain up your teeth. So in closing, coffee is definitely not a bad thing. Coffee is definitely a good, sustainable strategy, but you wanna make sure that you're getting healthy coffee. The recommendation I'd like to make is what's called Bulletproof Coffee. And this is from our friends over at the Bulletproof Executive blog. And at some point we'll have them on the show as guests to talk about the really intensive process that they went through to create this really just super pure, super healthy, super high in antioxidant coffee that tastes really delicious and it's very affordable also. So as far as coffee, I'd recommend saying no to the generic Starbucks stuff. Definitely say no to the Folgers and go and check out Bulletproof Coffee. However, 
My real recommendation, if you like saving money and saving time, along with being smarter and more productive, is to make the switch to nootropics. Two bottles of the highest quality paracetam, which we saw on our website, is $37.90, including shipping. And that will last you 30 to 60 days, depending upon how cognitively fired up you like to be, and if you like to take it on weekends, or if you just take it during the weekdays. So the takeaways from this episode are start using memory systems now for building a better brain and building better connections in between your unconscious and your conscious mind. Make sure that you are healthily managing stress. Make sure you're not following the advice of that stupid entrepreneurial platitude that we gave earlier. And make sure you are either drinking healthy coffee or getting nootropics on a daily basis so that you can live a kick-ass life. If you found anything in this podcast useful or actionable as something that really is going to help you improve your life, please take a minute to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and a five-star rating and a short review with your thoughts of the show in iTunes. This will improve the visibility of the show so that other people can get the same kind of helpful information about living limitlessly. Legal Notices If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink. We want to give credit where credit is due. As a listener to the Limitless Mindset Podcast, we hope you have and practice common sense. However, since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health, legal, or business nature, this show is for entertainment purposes. If you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com.